0: Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people.
1: The COVID crisis has radically transformed how we live, how we work, how we learn. But thank goodness this hasn't meant that learning has stopped. Teachers, students, and families have taken up digital tools en masse. But while remote learning has become a lifeline, it has also exposed underlying inequalities in access to digital resources, like home computers, for example and even simply access to a quiet place to study at home. And now, with confinement measures easing in a number of OECD countries, some students are returning to schools and to a new normal that will further transform learning. I'm Shane McLaughlin, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm joined today by Tracy Burns, who's a senior analyst at the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation. And today we're going to explore what this world that's been reshaped by COVID-19 means for education. So welcome, Tracy, and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So let's just get straight into it. A lot of kids and young people, in fact, in 170 different countries, are stuck at home. Tracy, what would you say about education? Some are saying that education's kind of in lockdown too. Can you give us an idea or a feel for the current situation?
0: Great question. I think it's quite clear that this is an unprecedented experience across the world, not just within OECD countries, but worldwide. And the numbers are changing daily, just as we saw millions of students being affected in this week alone. UNESCO figures are showing that at the beginning of the week, there were 1.6 billion children that were affected by school closures. And right now it's down to one2 and it's expected to keep dropping as countries start opening up their schools more and more. So those numbers will continue to keep dropping, hopefully, as long as public health permits.
1: You actually recently wrote in in an OECD blog piece that disruption is the new normal. And you went on to say that this could last for at least the next 18 months. What this might look like. And kind of wondering whether this crisis has help us uh, revisit uh, the organisation of learning in schools. And I'm keen to know about some of the factors that we would need to consider in this potential reorganization?
0: That's a, that's a tough question, actually. I mean, I think it's quite clear that school, as we know it, has stopped in most countries, although it's, it's worth mentioning that not all schools are closed in all countries. So some, some countries have kept their schools open. Sweden, for example, is the standard case. But also schools have remained open for the most vulnerable. For example, in the UK or Norway, they've actually kept their schools open for the most marginalized children. But on the whole, I would say, yes, there's been massive, massive changes to schooling and learning. It is transferred fundamentally online where possible, where systems permit. This is reflected uh, by the challenges faced by many parents around the world Um, and also teachers who are struggling in this new situation to, uh, you know, with very little notice to kind of redo their curriculum or teaching methods or thinking what the best approach is. There's two timescales right now. There's the immediate return to school. So schools are con- are starting to open their doors more, more children are coming, etc. Um, and that has its own set of concerns around hygiene, around trust and making parents feel that they can safely send their children to school, but also assessing possible learning losses and understanding what teachers should be doing. Um, but then there's a second timescale, which is this idea of not only are we going to be moving to go back to school and kind of regain from this period and this sort of very acute crisis, but we'll be having to continuously think about planning for sort of this new normal, which is the next 12 to 24 months.
1: And of course, being stuck at home has meant that our livelihoods, our lives and our schools indeed are now online and for some pretty much on the line. Um, So those that can't go to work, obviously, um, everything's uh, digital. What are some of the consequences of this for for students, Tracy? And how can schools continue to reach out to involve all families, um, even the hardest to reach?
0: One thing that's clear is if you don't have access to a digital device or, or know how to use it, there's two parts of that. First is the access. The second is knowing how to use it. You are massively, massively disadvantaged. Um, we do know from the latest PISA data in 2018, that 90% of students across the OECD said that they had access to a computer for school work, but there was a 17% difference between the students from advantaged homes and from disadvantaged homes. And of course, that question was asked pre-COVID, right? That was, do you have access theoretically a com- to a computer, which you might have to share with other siblings? Now, the reality is, as you've as you mentioned for your family, The reality is is that you need in many cases sort of a dedicated device per child which is simply not possible for most many many families and especially not the most vulnerable. So one of the things that's been really interesting is looking at what countries have done to try and bridge this digital divide. Um, New Zealand for example and also Mexico have put a lot of lessons and school courses on TV uh, which is a brilliant initiative because you're really reaching many many more people Uh, and able to kind of encourage them and keep them active throughout the day through a television. Um, Of course, if you have multiple children of different ages in the same home, you are not necessarily having different TVs for each of them, but at least it's a little bit of help. Um, Another thing that's being done is, of course, really helping and and sort of reaching out to bring devices to children in need for children that don't have access and trying to understand how to keep them involved in their schoolwork while they're waiting for the devices or while they've just been given one. Um, but, of course, the concerns are really about the most vulnerable. We know that disadvantaged children are less likely to have not only access to the devices, but the skills to use them. And really key, the parents are less likely, those parents are less likely to have the skills to help their children as well. So it's really a potentially very difficult situation for the most vulnerable children.
1: And I can imagine, too, that, you know, as our lives are increasingly online, not just for children we do quite a bit of work around protecting children online at the OECD of course but there are heightened risks aren't there.
0: What's being talked about right now in a really sort of immediate way is the worries of of children being exposed to contact risks so being approached by people with inappropriate content or by predators online and, and those kinds of things and One of the questions, and I was listening to a podcast on this yesterday from France was, do children know where to go? Do they actually know what to do if they've been approached? And in many cases, the answer is no. Um, So one of them is, is knowing what to do. The countries and the systems organizations that are responsible for responding to these kinds of things are reporting a rise in tips and complaints from children and their parents. So there's clearly more activity. Uh, by potential predators or by potential people trying to look for those loopholes. And then there's another much more systematic risk, which is in the rush to go online. A lot of schools and school systems didn't really have time to read through all the privacy agreements and the protection of student data agreements that comes when you sign up to a package.
1: Indeed. I'd just like to shift the conversation a bit to talk a little bit about academic performance. You've, you've spoken a little bit about our digital well-being as it were, but we know that many countries have been on lockdown now for for two months. Um, Do you have any early evidence that this has had an impact on the academic performance of students?
0: This is the biggest task that teachers have when they go back to school, is assessing the impact and trying to understand where students are in terms of lessons. Um, One is whether or not they've follow their lessons appropriately, whether they're aligned with the current curriculum. I think in most cases, the answer, there's no real uh, research that's been done on this, but I think it's pretty clear that students have not been able to follow as if there's no change. So uh, there's a a big expectation that there is um, a hit in learning loss, but then there's also the potential that students have actually sort of done worse from before they went. So they've actually lost ground from what they previously knew. Um, because they weren't motivated or they didn't keep active or they weren't able to build the knowledge that they even had previous to the break so part of this is a huge concern around academic uh, performance but that's also tied again to emotional well-being because learning requires you to to be alert and to be happy and to be able to understand what's being taught to you and engaged as a learner
1: that's a bit of a problem isn't it when when those things are hands-on and they really do require the tools and and so on in in the school setting that's uh the challenge is definitely there.
0: Well, and I think one thing when, you, when you're when you speaking to teachers, one thing that's really clear is a lot of them had to really adjust their expectations. So moving online was not simply, you know, a different mode of delivery. It was sort of a fundamental different way of learning. Um, and teachers, it felt immediately they had to adjust their way of teaching, but also their expectations. They had to reduce what they thought they could cover in a day. In many systems, this is an explicit instruction that you must reduce your expectations, you must cover less. In others, there's a real focus on the core subjects like maths or or reading or science and all the electives are pushed to the background and in some cases those electives have either been cancelled or they've really been transitioned into just really working with student well-being and comforting them because this is actually a traumatic moment in their lives, um, whether you're young or or you're older and, and well actually in fact for all of us and so one of the questions is how do you actually kind of keep people together during this period so I think it's quite clear that there's been a, a large effect um, and one of the real questions is how are we going to actually recover from that in the best
1: way possible. Uh, safety is going to be a priority it's going to be paramount in schools um, as we move forward. So Tracy, can you give us an idea of some of the measures that authorities need to consider as they open the school gates?
0: um yes and and this is where we can really learn from countries that have already done this because they you know there are countries that are sort of a month or a few weeks ahead of the others and so um, one of the big things of course is just physical security, disinfecting the buildings, actually providing safe uh, safe classrooms. Um, another one is a lot of efforts to reduce and increase social distancing ability, abilities. So having fewer students in classes, bigger spaces between the desks, more time for students to be on their own and not as close to their to their peers, um, having teachers, for example, stay in a bubble with a particular set of students and not move between classrooms and not have and having students stay in one class the whole day instead of moving, those kinds of things. And also, of course, thinking through how do you get uh, the lunch break. Do you? stagger it at different times so you keep the kids in their own rooms there's different choices that systems are making um, which are actually quite interesting because they're finding their own way forward in this but they're all focused on creating the safest environment possible and also of course building the trust and confidence of parents because they need to feel that they are comfortable sending their children back to school Uh, and so that's one of the big challenges as well as not just keeping things safe and making sure that they're ready to go for children but really convincing the parents and the teachers that these buildings are in fact safe and and their health won't be compromised by going there.
1: The last question today is really about the future and what we do from here and I know we're not there yet but I'm just keen to hear from you Tracy um, about how we can build resilient systems and schools that will be resistant to future shocks
0: well that is the the question right i mean i think the thing is is and this is one of the great difficulties of, of this moment is the global pandemic was one of the the possible future shocks that we've been discussing for 30 years you know that this was always one of the things that could come and disrupt everything um and despite the fact that it's been well known as a potential shock we all managed to still be be struck by it so there's i think there's an issue around you know really thinking through how we can adapt and make things more sort of resilient for the future but then there's also the understanding that when push comes to shove the sort of hard day-to-day realities often crowd out these these ideas so so sort of getting learning right now is more important for more, for many people than really creating systems that can sort of survive different different possible threats to the future um, and I think we need to be really careful also on what we expect of education, because I'd say that we're expecting an enormous economic downturn when we talk about how we can build up an education and learn from what's we've sort of all the opportunities and the crazy wonderful innovations that we've seen across all the OECD countries. We're thinking, well, how can we carry that up or scale that out on a broader, on a broader level? These things will cost money. What can we say has worked and what has worked well? So in order to do that, we actually need evaluation, and this will take some time. But once we've identified that, how can we build that into our system? How can we help teachers be ready to keep that going, to try these new roles, et cetera? We've also, this whole experience, I think has for almost everyone, really reminded us of the power of the physical world. We are a social species. When we have these discussions about, for example, moving learning online entirely, Mm -hmm. one of the real sort of reasons it doesn't always work is because in fact, like to be in class together or we like to think through how we can have a good time and laugh with our friends. Thinking about building systems for the future is going to be sort of a lot of thinking about kind of economic trade-offs and spending priorities but it also has to be very much about sort of the human element of learning and education as you know as broadly defined education for academics, but also education for citizens. And I think that's one of the areas where we're expecting a lot of really interesting discussions in our countries. We're seeing it already. Countries are really embracing these kinds of challenges. Um, And so I'm looking forward to hearing what they decide.
1: Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today, um, speaking with OECD podcasts and sharing your knowledge and experience. My pleasure. Uh, To learn more, use your online devices um, in whatever shape or form they might be um, and visit www.oecd.org slash coronavirus and all of our policy papers and our blogs and podcasts, videos and other um, media can be found there.
0: To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash OECD.